saw your ad in the classified. Three African goats for sale. I keep calling. All I get's a machine. Is that a typo in the paper or what? Welcome yet again to 200 a Day, a podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And we have a journey to the limits of consciousness today. Yeah, uh, the episode we're doing today is Quickie Nirvana, episode, well, it's season four, so we've we've gone beyond Hulu now. We've broken the seal. We've started our journey to the later seasons. So this is season four, episode seven, uh, directed by Mita Rosenberg, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. quite a few writing credits on this one. The actual script writer is David Chase, and then the other credits. I've realized at this point, however many episodes we are in now, <laughs> that every episode is credited to Huggins and Cannell. Right. Because they are the series creators, in addition to whoever actually wrote it. I feel like every production story is interesting. Uh, right. And this one is no exception. But Roy Huggins was only associated with the show for like four or five episodes before there were personality differences. And he, uh, my understanding is he was at first distanced and then like left. So he's credited because he's, he came up with the show concept and was the one who shopped the original pilot around. But then after the beginning of the first season, he actually was not involved with the show. So as you said, directed by Mita Rosenberg, who's the executive producer for The Rockford Files. Yeah. She seems great. There's a video interview with her online that uh, I've been dipping into. By the time this episode airs, we'll have posted links to this interview on our Patreon. Um, Or you can Google it, but... She was good friends with James Garner, was looking for a show for him to be in. This script was shopped to her. Uh, she decided it was a good match, and thus the series happened, is the Cliff's notes. Also, she's apparently the one who brought on David Chase, because she was working at uh, Universal, I think is where this all happened. Her office was across the hall from the office of someone who already had David Chase writing for them. So she ran into him and... Asked him for a script one day and liked his writing and brought him on. So, uh, you know, by now, season four, he's a, a core part of the creative team. Right. Uh, that said, there's a lot of really interesting character stuff in this episode. So yeah. we, we might err on the side of talking about characters and kind of go through the, the plot events a little quicker than usual to make sure we have time. Unfortunately, the three African goats from our message... <laughs> Do not feature in the episode. Uh, the preview montage starts off in a way that is near and dear to my soul <laughs> as the resident vegan, where mm-hmm. <laughs> the very first things we hear as we're looking at a fish that Rockford is preparing to eat, someone will come to know as Sky say, people should love animals, not eat them. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that statement 100%. <laughs> I think Rockford doesn't. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But heavily hinted that there will be some hippies in this episode. This is a very... I mean, hinted, and then we see a a shot of a field of grass with a bunch of hippies on it. Uh, We will transcend our consciousness uh, in in a way that only Rockford can can help us. And so that we're not mistaken by any of this, (laughs) the preview montage also gives us plenty of action, uh, including... Uh, Rockford yelling to Sky to to run at the end of it. There, we also know that there'll be some sum of money in this episode. Uh, looks oh, to yeah. be about twenty five thousand dollars. And we know that people involved with that money have guns. Oh yeah, that's the other bit in the uh, opening there. Not clean money at all. No. One last note before we get into it. 
you are a resident vegan. I'm vegetarian to the extent of not eating uh, fish or other things with, with eyes. There's a lot of food stuff in this episode yeah. that's about eating and what that means about people's characters, even more than what I'm obsessed with. It's actually right. like part of the text of this episode. So we're going to be talking about that. And we're also going to be talking about moralizing and making judgments about other people's lifestyles. <laughs> so I wouldn't go so far as to say that this is a warning, but I do want to give a heads up. Right. As people who've made the dietary choices that we have, we have some opinions about this kind of stuff and <laughs> it might come out. We'll see. Yeah, this is a good food episode. Like, a really good food episode. I take it as vindication, personally. Yeah. <laughs> 200 a Day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our gumshoes. For this episode, we have eight of them to thank. Thank you to Mike Gillis. Check out his pop culture discussion podcast, Radio vs. the Martians. It's the McLaughlin Group for nerds. RadioVsTheMartians.com Kevin Lovecraft, visit misdirectedmark.com to hear him on the Wednesday evening podcast All-Stars Actual Play podcast, part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. Lowell Francis, check out his award-winning gaming blog, ageofravens.blogspot.com. Thank you to Shane Liebling, Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, and Victor DeSanto. And finally, a big thank you to Richard Haddam for his very generous support. Find him on Twitter, at Richard Haddam. If you want to get a shout-out for your podcast, blog, or anything else you do, check out patreon.com slash 200 day and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. Well, to, to get us kicked off with our trippy hippie vibe here, we have a Age of Aquarius-style oh. wavy cam shot over plunky sitar music to start off the episode proper. So we have a moment of that, just enough to establish the tone. And then it kind of fades out and we see this plywood constructed kind of teepee yeah. on the beach uh, with our principal guest star, Sky or Jane or Gopi. But I'm going to be calling her Sky for most of this because it's, yeah, it's really the character name. And then she comes out of this teepee thing and then turns off the music that she was playing for herself on the tape player. So I right. love that little like diegetic moment where it just brings you from the TV showing you a theme to and now this is the character yeah it's like a a reverse transcendence right so it's all wavy and she's in a pyramid and it's all like well centered and the music is pervading everything and then like you said the pyramid she's in is is uh is made out of plywood and in fact you can see on the side it was plywood that was originally used to box up a refrigerator so this is like trash plywood so everything about that that scene goes from this sort of cosmic down to the real i learned the word for that and i am uh going to be embarrassingly honest that i haven't known this word despite my four decades on this planet it's called bathos uh and it is when uh the exceptionally commonplace is put within juxtaposition of a elevated or exalted style or moment. And it comes from Alexander Pope. So it starts off in the 1700s. So while it has Greek origins... It's not a classical Greek term. No. That we just are too dumb to have known about. Our cousins across the pond might refer to this as taking the piss. Yes, <laughs> that would be... Yes. But that's when a person is doing it on purpose, while yeah. this is more just a name for the for the phenomenon. For me, the click of the tape stopping mm -hmm. is the best part of all of it. Like, it's not this elevated cosmic idea. It's someone playing some music they like. 
uh, I think bringing this all the way down to the commonplace yes. uh, is Sky goes to, she's on the beach by Jim's trailer, of course, because right. it's the Rockford Files. And she goes into Jim's trailer where he is flaying his fish to use his phone. There's some play where we learn about them and we'll go into that in a second. But she's she needs to use his phone to call the office of the job that she just essentially quit right and see if she can get her last paycheck yes so we're going all the way from meditating in this kind of elevated spiritual style to i need to get my last paycheck for this crummy job that i just quit by not showing up to right (laughs) yeah this first scene does a lot of work to get the episode going right we find out who this person is her relationship to rockford and the uh situation that is going to get us going now, I have a food theory starting off right away with the first if I may. You may. When she gets in here, she starts eating what I think is an Oreo. Yes. And the way she eats it is she picks up a spoon and starts scraping out the innards of the Oreo. So, as someone who pays attention to Rockford's Kitchen, yeah. it's canonical that he has Oreos in that cookie jar. Yeah. <laughs> along with his gun. <laughs> but the way she's doing it is mirroring she's disapproving of what he's doing but she's doing the same physical actions Mm -hmm. to get the sweet innards of the oreo and i I, that's going to be important in in the latter half of our episode i think that all of these little details are 100 percent on purpose in this episode yeah this episode like the story isn't the most creative or out there there's not a lot of tension because it's a more funny episode than anything else so it's maybe not as memorable as some other episodes in the grand scope of the show, but it is exceptionally well-crafted, I think. Yeah. We'll try not to get too bogged down in lots of these little details, but I think that's a good example of, in all of these scenes, especially the ones where there's a conversation between two or more characters, there's lots of little character bits and action and movement that all play into to the story and what's going on with the characters. She's at the beach because she got uh, totally hassled by some bill collectors (laughs) waiting for her when she went home the night before after leaving this crappy job. So she didn't go home uh, and she's calling the job to try and get her last paycheck sent to Rockford's trailer instead of her place so that she can evade these bill collectors. And to his credit, Rockford is completely down with that plan. He's Mm -hmm. like, I've been there before. Yeah, that's no problem. In the the kind of establishment banter while we're finding out those plot details, she talks about how uh, she got rolfed, which is <laughs> a a practice to bring your body into full alignment. Yes. And mentions how everyone's body is out of alignment. And for example, if your like, dad really gave you a lot of grief, <laughs> your head's lower. She mentions a dad. This comes back in this conversation. It becomes apparent that like Jim and Sky know each other, they're friends, but probably no more than that. There's really no romantic no. angle in this episode. Uh, my assumption here is that they met on the beach. Yeah, that she's just kind of like a member of the community. Yeah, this this is where the description of Jim, which I think might be my favorite description of Jim <laughs> in all of history, is sweet, hang loose, and kind of a fascist. Yeah, it is a great description. That comes towards the end of the scene where they've... So this conversation carries, you know, she makes her call. uh, They continue talking. They go out of the trailer. And 
uh, all of his trash cans have been knocked over. Yes. So he goes, what I refer to in my notes as, he goes full dad. <laughs> He's <laughs> so just frustrated and angry that the no one observes the leash laws. And so these neighborhood dogs have knocked over <laughs> his trash can. Brings up dogs, which comes back later. Uh, and also his frustration with the leash laws is what brings... Sky yes. to the comment that he's kind of a fascist. Yeah, it's it's great. He's clearly being inconvenienced by people disregarding these laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his complaint about that is what, in her mind, makes him a fascist. Right. Uh, we're going to see a little bit more of that come out. And um, I think this episode doesn't lay that all on her. I think that this episode kind of does a good job of being like, yeah, no, she's flaky. She's a little trippy. She's a little too far out there. We all love Jim, but come on, Jim. But Jim also <laughs> is a bit of a, a bit of a cranky dad in yeah, yeah. a lot of these moments. Uh, she says that he, he should just, uh, use positive affirmation. Just say that the dog's <laughs> aren't going to knock over his trash and they'll stop. And that she learned this from someone named Gordon. Yes. Who is apparently really a tuned in being someone that she clearly admires at some point she also mentions uh calling an ashram which yes again will come up later so the scene kind of gives us all these little nuggets that are going to then seed the next couple scenes but yeah it's great it's pretty long um it's super fun their chemistry is really good i think yeah james garner and the the uh, actress playing playing sky valerie Curtin. She's great. She was in various uh, kind of TV shows and, and a couple movies, but she's also a writer and fun fact, uh, wrote the movie Toys. Oh, really? Interesting. She, I guess you, so she was married to Barry Levinson, who directed that movie, among many other movies. But yeah, she does a great job in this, in this episode. Yeah. So we learned that she was trying to get her, uh, get her last check back from this law firm that she was working at. We go to a car with two amazing gorillas uh these two extremely sharply dressed black men who have great 70s hair and paisley ties and just great casting throughout yeah oh i I love these two uh it it sort of breaks my heart that the whole episode isn't about them (laughs) they've discovered from the cafe owner that jim's a pi she's brought a pi into it but they're just going to see how he plays it. So right. something is going on. Rockford drives away. Um, they follow him. We have our credit sequence as they drive through the hills of lovely seaside California. And then I like the directness of the scene where the camera's in front and we see Rockford's car come around a turn. And then he just pulls over and just waits. Yep. So clearly <laughs> we don't we didn't need to see any action or dialogue or anything. Classic Rockford chase. <laughs> Yeah, he clearly knows that he's being followed. The two guys kind of give each other guff over not following him well enough. They go ahead and follow him over. They want to know what Jane Patton has told him, what she's up to. Right. We have a little back and forth to find out that Jane Patton is the the birth name, government name, if you will, of Sky Aquaria. Yes. Jim comes up with a quick story about her going to see some relative. Some wedding. Something to that extent, I can't remember, but it was just, it's a very good Rockford thinking on his feet moment. There's a few of these in this episode where he just, he's like, oh, I've got a lie for this. That's no problem. I'll just put that out there. They don't believe him. The the bigger guy, there's a big guy and there's like a slightly smaller Weasley guy. We learn their Mm -hmm. their names later. Dijon and Eddie, yeah. I don't remember which is which though. Uh, The bigger one, you know, hassles Rockford, tells him to tell it like it is or he's going to break his face extremely direct and then we get what i refer to as a meaty fight yeah there's a lot of 
very thumpy gut punches and jaw punches where we see for a Rockford fight, a lot of straight up punching each other until someone falls over. Yeah. There's a great moment early on in the fight. Rockford uh, gets the drop on the big guy uh, and we get a close-up camera shot on a kidney punch or something Mm -hmm. that Rockford does. Punches him and then we cut back to the other guy who says something like, hey, a tiger. Like he's excited. Let's go. This one's a tiger. And he kind of sneers and takes his jacket off because he's going to go fight. And then he just gets immediately thrown to the ground by Rockford. (laughs) Uh, They exchange some blows. Rockford manages to knock the other two down scrambles away and knocks their car into either either neutral or reverse real quick so that the car goes backwards as he jumps in his car and peels out going up the slope because they're on a slope yeah this gambit works and the car rides away yeah just a tiny choice that just makes the resolution of the scene effortless this is a variation on a rockford theme because he'll he'll do things like he'll, he'll grab the keys mm-hmm. and throw them or something like that I thought it was kind of a fun, reckless version of it because they're on a slope and that is a car you're, you're putting in reverse. Uh, Rockford looks up this ashram that Sky referenced because um, maybe she's there and goes to check mm-hmm. it out. And we get a great conversation scene where he talks to the woman who answers the door at this, scare quotes, ashram, uh, which <laughs> looks like a house. There's a broken down fridge in the parking lot. Yeah, there's somebody in a sleeping bag out in the yard it's a, it has the feel of a squat right i think here i mean we kind of saw it in the first scene but here we really see the show's orientation towards this kind of hippie spiritualist slash burnout kind yes. of uh community i guess or lifestyle similar to how in our episode about uh, oracle or a cashmere coat how that episode has an opinion on the role of this psychic. This episode, I think it's uh, measured. There's sympathies for the hippies Mm -hmm. themselves, but not the the gurus. Or the the community, the larger lifestyle that is kind of enabling some of the dropout, burnout behavior. This brings up an interesting question, Mm -hmm. and one that we've decided we're going to explore for every episode. What is this? Is this Jim in trouble? Is this Jim helping out a friend? Is this an issue episode? I mean, I don't think it's that, but I just want to present, like, the Venn diagram that I see happening. Yeah. I think that the core of this episode is Jim helping out a friend. Yeah. Because that usually implies or brings along with it he gets into trouble himself. Right. right? Rarely do Jim's friends get trouble into trouble in isolation. And then it does have a little bit of the... I mean, I guess it has a little bit of the issue, but I think it's not really like a social issue. It's more a, we're going to look at this idea through the Jim Rockford lens, and that lens is one that doesn't like frauds. Yeah. It's taking the opinion that a lot of this lifestyle is hucksterism and fraudulent, while being a little more sympathetic, I think, like you said, to the individuals. It doesn't really like the structure. Well, I mean, we'll talk about this when we get to the end, but I think the very ending of this is what lays the most doubt about what subgenre of Rockford Files we have here. It's clearly a friend that's in trouble with a little bit of the issue thing. Mm-hmm. And then the, the the very end of it is a little bit more a, a Rockford sucker punch to the field. Yeah. So yeah, so so Rockford's at this the the ashram and is talking to this woman who answers the door, who kind of gives him the blow off until 
he describes Sky, and then yeah. this person recognizes her as Gopi. Yes. Which means cowgirl devoted to Krishna. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Apparently, she yeah. was uh, not on board with the the vibes there and was too selfish for their selfless way of life and turned her back on the community. And through this, we see and then it gets reinforced that this woman just like doesn't like her like her and sky just didn't get along yeah it's delicious how petty this whole scene is it's all of the accusations are trumped up in a much larger much more elevated uh she didn't let her have the window seat on the bus and that ruined her chances for self-discovery there's no way that sin is that big (laughs) Right. You know, it's just, yeah, she was a jerk. She didn't let you have the window seat. She also mentions that she's, Gopi says she's 32, but she's really 40, which yeah. is both a petty thing and also comes back later. Yeah. We see through all this that this woman just is kind of like glad that she's not there anymore and kind of felt like she yeah. won, basically, whatever conflict they had. Rockford is regretful about this because he claims to have a load of organic vegetables for below cost because he had an overload and he promised Sky that he would sell them to her if he ever, if this right. ever happened. So he's trying. That's why he's trying to get in touch with her. Great Rockford thinking on his feet moment. I wrote this down like Jim can read a need. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is an an angel quality, right? Like he's like, oh, I know exactly where to put the pressure. And in this case, you're hungry. You're gonna be hungry that if you are in this flop house that is, you know. And you see her eyes light up when he says. <laughs> extra vegetables and then he lists yeah. out a menu of vegetables which are things that are in my cupboard and i eat all the time right like avocados and tomatoes well hydroponic tomatoes and bok yeah. choy Bean sprouts i think we're going to spend a lot of this episode saying later on we'll talk about yeah. this but i am going to put a specific pin on this because later in this episode we're going to end up at a falafel stand and i want to talk about all of this when we get to the falafel stand. <laughs> All right. The takeaway here, once uh, she has a reason to help him out, is that Gopi is probably up at the Sunfire Institute in Berkeley because she yes. got along with the people there. But they're a bunch of frauds. That's the wrong way to enlighten. Right. We end the scene with her talking about how you can just tell with some people. <laughs> Oh, because because Rockford's like, well, I really have to talk to her because I pro- first because I promised. And he's like, well, that's I forget the line, but she basically says, oh, well, you can just tell when some people are like this and that, and you just know where they're yeah. coming from. Like you, for example. That part I wrote down I was like, you know who you remind me of? He's like, your father. How'd you yeah. know? It's oh. Uh. Call back to Sky talking about her father as the go-to example for giving you you know harsh on your mellow. I mean, I think we both can also just vaguely identify. Because there is something either paternal or avuncular about Jim Oh, yeah, he reminds me of my grandfather. Like, I have said this before. Um, And like I said, he went full dad earlier in the episode with the trash cans. Like, he is a very fatherly figure in a lot of ways. That said, Rockford heads up to Berkeley. His car overheats. Uh, We learn later a rock hit his radiator. It's not really important other than it's going to stick him in, in Berkeley for a night. This particular thing hit me in a weird way because this is a horror movie setup he is heading to uh what is uh some sort of compound where there's a different understanding of how the world works and there's clearly a spiritual leader there 
and his car breaks down. <laughs> For me, at this point, I, I, I mean, I wrote my notes, oh, this is isolation. This is good. It is no. not. What's happening here is we're just getting the Rockford grind. Little things keep happening to him to make his mm-hmm. day worse while he's trying to solve this right. problem. I mean, I love that there is a Rockford grind and I'm not complaining, but I did find it very interesting that like my mind immediately went to this place where we're going to trap him here mm-hmm. in Berkeley. We're going to trap him on the Sunfire complex and something weird's going to happen there and he's going to be made vulnerable by this, but it's not the case. Instead of him getting isolated, we do just get him getting a ride to the Sunfire Consciousness Collective from some, like, farm truck. We get our shot from the preview montage of a lawn covered in hippies. And then we cut to Sky and Rockford in what has to be a what I'm starting to identify as a David Chase signature uh, visual gag. The two of them are talking behind Sky. Well, she's sitting and Rockford's standing. Behind mm. her is a sign that says Silent Garden. So the two of them are talking in front of the silent garden. And then if you look at that sign, yeah. there's a shot later where you're a little closer to it. And at the bottom, it says individuals only. So we have two people <laughs> talking in the individuals only silent garden. <laughs> Love it. Beautiful. Love the little gag there. But uh, Rockford wants to know what is up with her and her, that job because he was threatened by guys who knew her name and that she worked there. She doesn't know what's going on. But then... She remembers that she forgot that Alan, Alan Bayless, the the lawyer at the firm, asked her to deliver a package the night before. But because of the bill collectors scaring her off, she forgot about it. (laughs) Rockford is nonplussed. Yeah. But yeah, she's like, I think I threw it in the back of my car. So let's go see if it's still there. Oh, the back of her car. (laughs) On the way out of the compound, they run into Gordon. Was it Gordon Borchers? I think it's Borchers. Which, during the episode, I kept hearing as Borgers. They run into Gordon, the the guru of the uh, Sunfire Consciousness Collective, who's clearly a sleazebag. Yeah. Yeah. And Sky introduces them and talks about how great Gordon is. Gordon uh, asks if uh, Jim's there for the (laughs) pre-death, which is then explained as a sensory deprivation experience. Yeah, I do like that that doesn't get explained for a while, though. So pre-death just gets thrown around quite a bit before that and one of the things i love about it is just everything that we experience (laughs) as living beings is Mm pre-death so it's it's a wonderful term for it i think sky later claims that this guy gordon invented this practice right (laughs) it's a quick little interaction to introduce the character and also as an audience member i was like okay so here's our scumbag like here's the bad guy yeah this, this is the bad Which guy, right? is nice because uh, there's a little bit of complication to that. But I definitely, that's what, what I thought once he appeared on screen. Right. They go to Sky's car. The package in the back is indeed there and is full of cash. $30,000. Although right before the commercial break... Rockford says there must be $25,000 in here, which is what we get in the preview montage. And then we come back from the commercial break. It's $30,000. In another scene full of great one-liners and back and forth, we learn that Sky, she remembers now, she's supposed to give it to someone in a fur vest by the falafel stand down on the boardwalk in Venice Beach, I think. <laughs> yeah. She can't remember his name. It was very unusual. Uh, another one of her memory problems. Maybe it was just a business deal. <laughs> And Rockford's like, legitimate businesses don't do cash drops to a guy in a vest by a falafel stand. Yeah, that's... He becomes very the voice of normalcy and reason throughout the scene. I do want to mention, 
as a child of this era, a child of the Midwest during this era, I would have had no clue what a falafel was. None whatsoever. As a modern day vegan, thanks to Dr. Falafel and Professor Hummus, I can eat anywhere in the world. But back then, that probably would have stood out as some sort of exotic food to me. I don't know if that's the case for everyone during that time. Obviously, they knew what it was. I'm imagining it was probably kind of a Hollywood thing, right? Like a like a California thing. Yeah. They mentioned avocados earlier. Yes. Now we get, hum- uh, now we get falafel. Yeah. But yes, where this goes is that Sky thinks, wait a second, maybe this is all just the working of the Great Wheel, and we're supposed to have this money, or I'm supposed to have it, or you're supposed to have it. Right. (laughs) And this is when we get Rockford's line about people have guns who want this money. Right. And she talks about karma, and I think this joke might be what this entire concept for this episode is built around. I think that David Chase came up with this line. This is just my theory. Came up with this line yeah. and went, how do I work this into an episode? And that was the genesis, which is forget the karma and get in the car. Right. <laughs> just wakes up in the middle of the night, whoa, writes it down or says it to like his kid or something like, that. like forget the karma, get in the car. Oh. The whole episode spun out of that one line. Yeah. That's my theory. Don't tell me I'm wrong. I like it. This is also where we get Sky explaining pre-death, which is the sensory deprivation yes. experience. And Rockford's saying, oh, yeah, the Air Force experimented with that. And she's like, no, they wouldn't do that. Gordon invented it. Yeah. <laughs> Not those militants. Uh, but the key takeaway is that Rockford is stuck in town for the night because his car, because of the rock and his radiator. Right. They're going to go back to L.A. the next day, give back this money, don't tell anyone about it. Of course... We go to the next scene where Sky is experiencing pre-death, which involves lying in a pool with right. a bunch of swimmies on, uh, a blindfold and nose plugs. But she can't get into it. There's there's too much materialist stuff hassling her consciousness. So Gordon, over this microphone, which is creepy, like just over a squawk box that's in the pool. Yeah. It's like, all right, well, let's rap about your head. What's been happening? And then we cut. And so this scene is why the radiator is damaged. She doesn't get the information and get to stay behind unless Rockford can't drag her away. We see the car heading back to L.A. the next day. And then we cut to Bayless's office where Mm -hmm. he's on the phone. Rockford is calling him from Rocky's house, which is great, to confirm that he got the package from the messenger service. So Rockford didn't even take it back. Rockford had it dispatched via messenger yes. and then drove to L.A. It's never mentioned, but I don't know if you wondered how much it cost for him to send it by messenger faster than he could drive it. When it comes to being Rockford's uh, bookkeeper... There's a lot of times I would just write down a variable, <laughs> X amount of dollars, gas. And so far, I've done X amount of dollars, radiator repair, X amount of dollars, tow, X amount of dollars, gas, X amount of dollars, hotel room for the night, X amount of dollars, messenger. Like, we have no idea. But he is getting paid nothing mm-hmm. for any of this. And almost guaranteed, Sky is not paying for any of it. She just doesn't have the money. So Bayless says, yep, I got it. Everything's fine. Rockford says, all right, we're out of it. Enjoy your money. Don't spend it all in one place. Great. Plot's resolved. <laughs> we do see that the two our two heavies from earlier are in the office with Bayless. So proof positive that, yes, he sent them and, and whatnot. When the guy is incredulous that Rockford sent it by messenger, Rockford does say, 
you know how it is. Some days you just don't feel like being shot. Just in case. Yeah. At the end of this scene, we get just a great piece of business with uh, with Rocky, Jim's dad, his only appearance in the episode, but it's so good. He's having tea with Sky, and then comes over and says, Miss Aquarium, not Aquaria, <laughs> Miss Aquarium. <laughs> yeah. Miss Aquarium told me that she knows a professional golfer, and you've been working on your swing. No, no. Yeah. You misheard. She meant Rolfer. And then we get Sky explaining to Rocky what Rolfing is while Jim just does a, the equivalent of the Simpsons Homer fading into the bushes shot. Right. It, he goes into the kitchen and he closes the door and it's got the, like a windowsill between the kitchen and the, the room that are in the, and it's got shutters, none of which can really block out the noise. Right, but just the visual of him just fading away. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. All right, so uh, Rockford and Sky head back to his trailer because, you know, everything's taken Mm -hmm. care of. But then our guys, our two heavies, show up before they can go into the trailer. Rockford is incredulous, but turns out that the envelope was full of newspaper, not dollar bills. He, uh, Rockford says, well, someone obviously switched it. Why would I tell you that I'm sending you your money and then send you newspaper? But these guys are not here to listen to reason. That's not their job. That's the, the sort of curse of Rockford, right? And this episode is a great example. We're going to get more of it in a moment, but they're not going to listen to his reason because why should they trust him? Sky isn't ever going to listen to his reason. She's not a fascist like Rockford <laughs> And very soon now, we'll find mm-hmm. that the cops are not going to listen to his reason. Uh, and that is the natural state of Rockford, to know the truth and have nobody pay attention to him. The look on Rockford's face when Sky tries to de-escalate the situation by saying, let's all be very mellow, is fantastic. <laughs> She's like, let's try and remember that we're all humans. Oh, it's great. But no, they want to go in the trailer and talk about it. Rockford says, okay, well, my dog is going to freak out. So let me go in first and calm him down. He's a huge German shepherd. He's not going to be happy. So he goes in and starts calling for his dog, Sergeant. Sergeant, easy boy, nice militaristic name for his giant German shepherd. But of course, this is a ruse. Rockford distracts them by being like, here he is. And when they're both looking down at the floor, he sucker punches one of them, <laughs> yells for Sky to run. And then they run out of the, the trailer. Because they were outside and he was unlocking his door, I think he left his key there. So it was still locked because they run out, the door closes, and then the guys take a couple seconds to to open the door. Oh, yeah. I think that was just physical business yeah. of him leaving it locked before they went in. Yeah. Another little moment, but just it's the little moments that make the show so great. Rockford survival tips. <laughs> uh, they go to the gas station. I think we come into the ongoing argument they obviously have been having. Right, yeah. Obviously, Sky told someone, and she admits that she told Gordon, or he, Gordon wouldn't take the money. And so Rockford does not believe that, but also gives her a little bit of a bone and is like, or well, then he must have told someone else. And she's like, yeah, maybe someone right. else, maybe he told someone else, but that's not his fault. So here's the other, another one of these great details that I'll talk about more in the second half. But he hands her window cleaner and asks her to clean the windshield. And she thinks about it for a while and cleans her own glasses Mm -hmm. instead. I'm just going to leave that there for now. This scene is essentially Rockford being righteously indignant that she didn't listen to him. He gave her a very specific instruction. She didn't do it because as an idealist and someone who's somewhat weak-willed, I think she's presented as, when Gordon asked her what the problem was, she told him. But she won't believe that he could have had anything to do with it. Right. Uh, She ends... 
by quoting some very confusing Dylan lyrics, which seems 100% in character. But yeah. then we head back to Sunfire as Rockford wants to track down Gordon because he must have been the one who switched this money. Uh, however, when we get back to the Sunfire Consciousness Collective, we find out that everyone is rejoicing because Gordon went to India to study with, quote, the holy man. Yeah. So there's another person telling Sky about this. Sky is responding right. to her and Rockford is watching Sky. And we see Rockford's face as Sky realizes that Gordon must have skipped town with the money. And then we see yeah. his face as he realizes that she just had this earth shattering realization and is now deeply upset. Yeah. All in the facial expressions. Yeah. We see the sympathy for her as a person in this moment, which I think really helps balance out yeah. some of the other ways in which she's presented. Go to, oh man, one of the greatest cuts in Rockford Files history. We go from <laughs> Rockford feeling this sympathy for this poor person who just had her world turned upside down to Dennis Becker in a pizza stand uniform taking orders for beachside pizza. <laughs> this is a role for Dennis Becker to play. I mean, Joe Santos mm. is great at it as Dennis Becker in this role, but this is Dennis Becker's role. Like He has the little peaked hat and the apron. It's yeah. beautiful. Rockford and Sky cut the line to come up and talk to talk to Dennis. Yeah. And there you can see the people behind them giving them the stink eye. Dennis yeah. tries to keep up the act cuz he's on a stakeout. Yeah, the the act here is he's he's on a stakeout. He's undercover along with several other cops. Yeah, and so he keeps calling orders as if they're ordering while he's talking to them, including yeah. pizza with anchovies. And the orders all contain one or more words that Rockford... Like, Rockford's not talking mm. to him about food. He's like, I got a, a big problem, and he's like, yeah. two big pizzas, you know, or whatever. It's just like he's trying to incorporate what Rockford is saying into the the character here that he's desperately trying to maintain. Rockford got the, got the address from Peggy, his wife, because <laughs> Peggy has no reason to lie to Rockford. Uh, they're staking out a major numbers running or numbers drop or something. Yeah. A gambling sting, essentially. Yeah. And Becker doesn't want to be bothered because this is a major operation. They have all these agents there. Rockford's of the opinion that gambling is a victimless crime and that... You know, someone with guns wants this money and mm -hmm. they need to get Gordon back to give it to them. Rockford's impending murder is a more important crime for Dennis to investigate. This is one of the few times where Rockford's request does seem just unfeasible to me, which is you need to get right. him yeah. deported from India and sent back here. Right. He's blowing Becker's cover to get him to do something he clearly doesn't have the authority to do and never would. Like, it's just... Not a thing that he'll be able to do. So, Dennis, not able to help. Cut to our lawyer, Bayless, denying all these allegations. It's a beautiful shot where the camera starts on Bayless. We hear him denying all these obligations. It pans out to show his office. And we see Rockford and we see Sky, And then the last person we see is Lieutenant Chapman. <laughs> Who's pretty happy to be there, I assume. I mean, it looks like he's really enjoying himself. Not only is he always enjoying himself, <laughs> he loves being involved with Jim Rockford. Yeah. 
So we get what you might reasonably expect. We present this accusation, which sounds crazy. Mm -hmm. This person who's a straight-laced attorney denies it, implies that Sky is, you know, because she's a, a habitual pot user, right. casts some aspersions on her memory and her story, calls her a space cadet. This all takes place over an enormously ugly red deep pile carpet filling the entire office, which I noticed in the scene and then just couldn't stop looking at. We get Rockford calling for an end to the to the stale old pot booze debate. Mm-hmm. I love that that in 1977, Rockford's like, I'm I've had enough of this debate whether pot or drinking is worse. Uh, and we get a bunch of of good Chapman chewing out. Rockford and Rockford defending himself from Chapman. Well, the new thing, the stuff that we actually learn here is that Rockford sees some gold records on the wall and he points and was like, oh, Maceo Prentice. Don't they call him the Duke of Soul? And Bayless is like, well, he's a client. He's a crossover hit. He's mainstream now. Yeah. And Rockford's like, well, I've heard all I've heard in the news is that uh, he's being sued because he ran over someone at the Starland Club parking lot. Bayless is like, your facts are wrong. That person was intoxicated. The charges will be dropped. And Chapman's like, okay, let's get out of here. This is this isn't going anywhere. Right. So this is introducing some new stuff into the episode. This is Rockford's PI senses, right? So this Yeah. Because what's happening here is that there's a guy who's making a delivery of thirty thousand dollars cash, and there's no clear reason for why he's doing it. And I think that Rockford is fishing in this moment. Yeah. Or he doesn't know why it is, but he knows that by looking at the wall here and putting together what he knows about this news story, that one of this guy's clients is in trouble. So it's not clear from the scene that Rockford has figured anything out yet, but it's definitely a scene where Rockford is stirring the pot. He's trying to take a swat at the hornet's nest to see if anything comes out. And I think we see from how Bayless responds that this is something that he's worried about. Yeah, he's a little too interested in this singer's reputation. Right. And then we end with Rockford saying, so, okay, this money doesn't exist. But if it did, we don't have it. Right. And this guy Gordon has it. And he went to India with the money that doesn't exist. So if you want it back, which you don't, you have to talk to him. And then Sky. In her pretty much only real aggressive moment, does this weird thing with her arms. He goes, you're probably going to be squashed by the karmic backlash. Yeah. (laughs) So I appreciated Angry Sky here. Yeah. We now go to a scene explaining the backstory to why this is all happening. Right. But in a way that is so fun. Yeah. We meet Maceo, uh, who is the recording artist. He's talking to his lawyer, Bayless. And uh, our two goons are there as well. They're not the lawyer's goons. They're Maceo's goons. Right. Eddie and... Dijon. Maceo is wearing this enormously great mesh shirt. He looks great. Yeah. All right. So this scene is relatively long and there's a lot of character kind of dynamic. Uh, So I'm just going to kind of run down the high points for me and then see if there's anything else that you liked in there. And with the universal caveat, watch it. Bayless wants him to forget the 30 G's because the police are sniffing around. They should just drop it. They're being blackmailed. And so if this blackmailer hasn't gotten the money yet and mm-hmm. hasn't gone to the cops yet, then he's probably not going to go to the cops. What this is all about is about this this car accident, mm-hmm. which was, in fact, a murder. 
So there's someone named Joey. This is the person who was run over. He uh, stole Maceo's girl and then dumped her and then she killed herself. This enraged Maceo so much that he ran over Eddie. He did happen to be on coke at the time, but he still did it on purpose. He was like, no, I wanted to kill him. Bayless is the voice of reason here. He's like, look, if you weren't high, you wouldn't have done it. Uh, the blackmailer, the fur vest wearer, yeah. his name is Mac Grunning, and he saw it happen, and he saw them arguing, so that's why he's blackmailing uh, Maceo. Therefore, they were going to send this money and pay him off. Sky forgot. Now they're out the money, and they're worried that Mac is going to go to the cops before yeah. they can get it back. So that's the, the premise. Like, that is why this plot is happening. But what we also learn is that this quartet, these four guys, have been together yes. the whole time. They all came up together. The three of them, Maceo, Eddie, and Dijon, all sang together. And then Maceo's like the breakout star, and now they're his kind of his bodyguard slash Goomba, you know, whatever. But yeah. they're his best friends. They all came out of the Bronx. Bayless was a was a, a schnook, as he says, who just came out of law school and attached to them before they were anything. So they have this camaraderie together. Right. And Bayless is trying to play on that to talk Maceo down from killing anyone else. Cause he's like, look, just let the heat die down. We'll be okay. And, uh, Maceo, uh, encouraged by, uh, I think Eddie mm-hmm. is like, well, no, now we just have to kill him. It's too late. Right. He's a pillhead. He could do anything. And because Rockford and Sky are involved, they need to go too. And yeah, so it's great. I, I love how there's kind of just a sentence that connects each person to the other person. Yeah. So after like four sentences of dialogue, you understand their entire dynamic and why they're acting the way they are. It's great because they give Maceo uh, a motivation that's a little more detailed than they would have to. Right. There's the motivation for the crime. Right. But then there's also this like longer term. You see that he's been hungry for success and now there's something threatening the success. Yeah. And it's not so much that it makes him a sympathetic character is that it makes him more of a real character and not this. We need a bad guy. Let's just wave our hands. He's an up and coming musician who killed someone that he was angry at. We're good. We get why he's angry. And even the reason why he's angry at that person is complex. It's not even that the guy stole his girl. It's that this woman committed suicide because of this guy. And so, it, I mean, we've said it many times. The characters on the Rockford Files have actual lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one of those cases where just presenting the backstory, we don't get a whole lot more about these characters as the rest of the thing goes out. But we get enough to just make it this real thing moving forward. I really like what this scene does for Bayless, which is it shows us that he's between two equally difficult pressures. He's come up with these guys. Their success is his success, Mm -hmm. but they're also friends. But he also doesn't think that murder is right. He even says, no matter how horrible of a guy Joey was, and he was a complete garbage, like, like he wasn't even human, but he didn't deserve to be murdered. Yeah. So he has this like deep conviction about murder being wrong that is pushed up against his helping his friend and preserving his own way of life. It's just picking a couple things and putting them in tension and seeing this guy squirm as he's trying to manage these competing pressures on him. So, yeah. 
that scene does a lot of character work in a relatively short amount of yeah. time and pulls the mystery together too like for the audience at this point uh rockford has been on his heels the whole time just reacting to how things happen as a member of the audience you're getting a little bit about what's happening but you don't quite know it. and then this just says all right here's everyone's motivation this is why these events are occurring now that you know that keep that in mind going forward as we watch what happens next with rockford which is that they go to the boardwalk to try and figure out who she was supposed to give this money to. And they go to the falafel stand. This entire scene could be set in 2017. And the <laughs> only thing out of place would be Rockford. It is crazy. It's mm. like he traveled to the goddamn future. It's a falafel stand. It's also a skate rental place, which is not a thing I'm used to. But I'm assuming people rent skates and go up and down the boardwalk. The guy behind the counter is so 2017. Like, his jewelry, what he's wearing, his beard. So I got kind of obsessed about this. If you go into IMDb, mm -hmm. this guy's name is Aesop Aquarian. This is the real person. Did you look into his credits? Yeah, he was in Lord of the Rings. He was in the... Yeah, he was one of the voice actors in the uh, the Bakshi. The Bakshi, yeah, the Ralph Bakshi one. Oh my god, like... Which you would expect when you look at him. Sky does not look like she wouldn't be out of place in 2017. Also earlier, when Rockford is suggesting all the foods, if you went online and you asked, like, people foods that millennials eat. <laughs> yeah. You know, the avocados, brown rice, it's just all come around again. But this particular scene, I remember just, just watching this, realizing how modern it looked. Mm -hmm. There was two real differences. One is that Garner is out of place in that yeah. scene. And the other is that he would have to be offering a $100 bribe instead of a $20 bribe right, to right. get this guy to tell him something about someone who might be wearing a vest. You know, he says, uh, there's a lot of people around here I haven't seen anything. Fur vest died out when Sonny Bono went network. <laughs> But for this $20 bribe, uh, he's like, oh, yeah, there's a guy who wears a fur vest around here. His name is Mac. Uh, he lives nearby in the Ritz by the Sea. Uh, they find Mac Grunning's name on a mail slot at the extremely gross looking hotel. They knock on the door. There's no answer, but it's open. We have some ominous harmonic music as Rockford <laughs> heads into the yes, apartment. It's a great music cue because it is everything else about the music is spooky. But there's the Rockford harmonica theme thread it throughout it that just gives it that let's say rockford edge rockford sees a, a bunch of pills and he finds a starland uh glass in the sink so these are tying into what we know of this guy uh and then sky who's wandering around in an extremely human seeming reaction yeah. she kind of like screams and then stuffs her fist in her mouth uh because she finds mac running's body hanging in the bedroom which is a little gruesome. But we do get this camera shot of the legs up and we see the fur vest. <laughs> yes. The the scream there is great. Because most of this episode has been comedic, right? Everything yeah. has been played for like a little... But the topic, there's a cold-hearted murder at the center of it. So it's not like this should be all that lighthearted. And this, mm -hmm. this scream is that moment where... It gets very real. Yeah, it's like, oh, shit, people are dying. We cut back to uh, Chapman is on the scene with yes. the, the cops investigating. Uh, Rockford points out the glass and that this guy had every Maceo Prentice LP on his record shelf. 
It's tying him to Macy. He basically spins out a theory which matches yeah. what we've heard as audience. Uh, what if this guy saw something and he was being, he's blackmailing Maceo, et cetera. Chapman, of course, isn't willing to listen to crazy theories. He's a pill head and he actually has an extremely dark take on the right. whole thing. The guy was a loser. He did a bunch of pills and took the big downer. Happens every day. Chapman, too real. Chapman's seen some shit. He, he kicks Rockford and Sky out of there. So we go to the burger joint, which is, I think, the last of these scenes that just has, like, so much going on in it. Yeah. And I'll try to hit highlights. Rockford's on the phone while uh, Sky they ordered burgers or whatever, so they show up while he's on the phone. He sits down, and she picks up her burger. She says, this poor animal died, so, you know, so we could eat this or something. A little, little prayer-like, almost. And this sends Rockford, he's had yeah. enough. He's sick of, as he says, her philosophizing and her moralizing and her whining. Uh, goes into full-on lecture mode. I pulled a couple choice quotes out that I thought were the, the key ones. A lot of this is about responsibility and how her life is about abdicating responsibility. Yeah. Your alternative lifestyle comes out of someone else's pocket. He doesn't have a problem with her believing what she believes, but she keeps on saying, I, I'm a quester after truth. And he's like, yeah, but you don't do anything. Right. What do you actually do? And she can't really answer him, right? The quester after truth line is interesting because it comes right after her. Like, I'm not hardwired to solve puzzles like you. What was interesting, I think, about the, those two statements in a row is that the first one is about a thing. Rockford has a skill that he's applying mm -hmm. uh, that we see throughout each, this episode and every episode we watch. You know, this is her questing after truth. There's no skill being applied there. You know, they're mm -hmm. both questers after the truth, right? Rockford's literally doing it, but he's doing it based on a methodology that he has developed mm -hmm. where she is just opening her mind to experiences. She says it like what she's doing is different from what Rockford does. But that phrase applies to both of them. Yeah, exactly. Also, his quest after the truth is about finding the truth. Right. He wants to find out what's happening and solve the problem. Uh, but he points out that her thing is all about the quest, essentially. He doesn't use that phrase, but she's bouncing around from yogi to yogi, from methodology to methodology, trying everything and finding nothing. Right. This is where he drops the title of our episode. As he says, there's no quickie nirvana. Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting because Rockford's not wrong, but he's also being kind of a jerk. Like, he's mm -hmm. so exasperated with her that he's like, I'm not going to be nice to you about this anymore. Right. She says that she wouldn't eat meat, but she's hungry. Right. And he's like, if you really believed in this, then you still wouldn't eat, uh, you know, eat this burger. But she's hungry, so she will. She just goes with whatever. Right. The problem is she's hungry, so she'll eat what's in front of her instead of taking some kind of step to solve that problem. How she eats the burger is interesting, too. Mm -hmm. Because what she does is she eats the only thing on her plate that is meat. It's the burger, not the bun, not the lettuce or any of the fixings. She just pulls the burger out and just eats that, which is takes me back to the Oreo where she's just eating yeah. the inside of the Oreo. I'm probably picking up on this as a non-meat eater who yeah. has been a non-meat eater for quite a few years, starting off in Wisconsin, <laughs> where it wasn't easy at the time. So you would end up eating what has been affectionately referred to as the Wisconsin salad, which is <laughs> every 
vegan bit on the plate that isn't the meat. She does the exact opposite of that uh, because that's what she wants to do. And he even takes it out of her hand. Like she takes like a bite and then he's so <laughs> fed up with her that he takes the burger out of her hand. We do see him taking some bites of his yeah, food. That's good. Rockford needs nourishment, We actually too. <laughs> see him eat. He needs his burger. Again, trash food, hot dogs, tacos, burgers, pizza. This is the Rockford diet. The button on this is about her age. Yeah. Where she says, I think I've done pretty well for myself. I'm 32 and this is my life. And he's like, well, I know you're not 32. You're 40. I've seen your driver's license. And she says that it's positive affirmation. She's youthing. Right. And then she says in a slightly more serious tone of voice that seems very real, I don't want to get old. Yeah, it's a very honest moment. Yeah, and he's like, well, join the club. And we get a little bit of Rockford realism where he's like, no one wants to get old, but yeah. we all deal with it. And that's the core of his thing. We all deal with these things, and you're not. And you don't deal with them in a way that hassles other people, that makes it inconvenient for other people to live their lives, particularly Rockford, because he's been drawn right. <laughs> into this by her avoiding responsibility. Uh, again, we, we see the, 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 the focus of the episode. This person has understandable motives, but her choices are not right. sustainable choices, right? Yeah. We also get that pull and push that's inside Rockford, where mm -hmm. he's got sympathies for her throughout. Like, we get that right in the very beginning of the episode where he says, oh, I've been there. You can go ahead and use my address. Yeah. Which is his fatal error <laughs> right. to begin with. To this, where he, he wants to shove... The, the BS away, or at least what he perceives as BS, because that's that's his survival mechanism. But he also wants to help her out. He does have sympathy for her and her condition. He can identify with not wanting to get old. He can identify mm -hmm. with having economic troubles. But, um, which I like. I Like, we get a lot of that throughout this whole episode, and I think this scene is a good scene for that, because every time you feel like he goes too far, gets a little too rough with her you also see him then dial it back mm -hmm. maintain his distance but become more sympathetic to what's happening the conversation does turn to what will we do next rockford called a friend his friend at the airline and that no one by gordon's name went to india uh, on the day that he said he did he's probably just went south with the money yeah she remembers him having some connection to a uh, to La Cuesta, some kind of plastic beach club, <laughs> and maybe he went there. Good enough for Rockford. They grab their burgers off the table and go. <laughs> so even though we saw Rockford take a couple bites, we do not see him finish the meal, and they both take their food in hand and leave the scene without completing their hamburgers. And one last little visual detail as she's leaving, she knocks a bunch of crap off the table and just leaves it there. Mm -hmm. uh, so we cut to Gordon, obviously not our main bad guy, but still a jerk. Yeah. With a tropical drink, getting a massage. <laughs> Rockford just walks in, wraps a towel around his throat, and starts choking him and asking him where the money is. I love how much the masseuse is a-okay with this happening like she's like yeah she just walks away <laughs> gordon's like uh the money's in my car as they leave the room sky's there and she's like mm -hmm. gordon how could you because she was legitimately betrayed by this guy right um, yeah she really believed in him and he just straight up was a was a fraud and he slaps her yeah and and in probably my least favorite part of the episode not just that he slaps right. her but then Rockford calling back to a much earlier scene where Sky was like going through a bunch of kind of generic yogi isms. Yeah. Well, that's the sound of one hand clapping. 
Right. Which is both a commentary on like this fraudsterism. Like that's what you get at the yeah. end of the day is you just get someone who's a phony and a jerk. But it's also like just a mean thing to say to her. It reminds me of the Rockford we see in Just by Accident, right? Mm-hmm. Little too mean. And and this could be the alternate to your uh, earlier theory. If this was the joke? Yeah, this is the joke that he had where he was like, oh, I know the sound of one hand clapping. Yeah. Somebody getting slapped. I choose to believe that that was not the genesis of this episode because that's a bad joke and it has not aged well. It, it hit me too, <laughs> no pun. But that moment I was like, ah, uh, okay. Yeah. We're getting into our conclusion now. Yeah. Rockford calls Bayless, is like, I really have the money. I'm going to give it to you myself because I can't trust anyone else. He wants to give it to him directly so that one of his goons doesn't take it and then say Rockford never gave it to him. Uh, they agree to the deal. And then uh, Maceo, who is listening on the other line, is like, go get the money. We'll kill him. Get him to tell us where the girl is in the other order. And this is where he mentions that uh, Dijon wanted to party with that dude Rockford anyway. So that's why I think Dijon's the, hey, a tiger guy. So we go to the exchange. Rockford set it up, of course, to be by the pizza joint where Becker is on stakeout. So we see Becker see Rockford arrive, go and give a paper bag to someone underneath the streetlight. And then two guys come up, one of them clearly with a gun, and take Rockford away to their car. So he grabs his radio and calls it in. There is a firearm. And then the the cops who are all on stakeout around this for three weeks all break cover and swarm in on the car. It's heavily implied that that Becker is the one who actually like shoots out their tire. Yeah, yeah. So Becker brings the car down and the our two heavies get pulled out and arrested. Becker is aghast. Three weeks worth of work down the drain. Are you satisfied? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm satisfied. (laughs) Freeze frame. And so here, we're like, yeah, that was great. The framing is on Rockford himself. He's smiling. Everything freezes. End of episode? Oh, no. There is an epilogue, my friends. The last thing I do want to say about that, though, is how it's a really great example of something the show does a lot, but I think it's just so clear here, which is uh, Rockford uses his knowledge of a adjacent situation to solve his problem. He never got Becker involved until he forced Becker to be involved because he knew about the stakeout. It's simple, but it just works. Yeah, no, it's uh, one of those moments that just absolutely delights the audience because they're like, oh, yeah, Becker was there. Yeah. Sometimes the joy is what's unexpected, and then sometimes the joy is seeing the thing you wanted to happen happen, and this is definitely that. But in our epilogue, um, we see Rockford is coming out of some building and we hear her voice first and then we see Sky. But she is no longer Sky. She's Hester and she is now a born again. And you get that immediately from her voice because she's on and on about Jesus this time. Rockford's like, Sky, it's been, what, four or five months? So established our time lapse. She says, right. oh, no, I'm, I'm Hester now. And she's all, she's, you know, in a, in a cardigan and her hair is in a bun and, uh, she's very severe and unexpressive. Um, and she's shilling the book of the Reverend Joe Goodhue at yeah. $7 a pop to pass her by by this like train station or whatever it is. Roughly $35 in 2017. 
Well, and she says... Yeah, how much do you spend on your soul versus how much you spend on your belly? Mm-hmm. Which I mm. think is a great commentary on the food part of the aspect of this episode. And behind her is, is another member of this church who is watching her very intently. I, I find that to be one of the most ominous bits about this particular scene. So what this scene is doing is showing us that Sky has learned nothing. Yeah. Right. Like she she's gone through the phase of looking for transcendence through meditation and whatever. And now she's found another strong male leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is doing something right. Like she's actively right. engaging with people trying to sell this book. I guess, ironically, that is more of an active role in society than when Jim was mad at her for being a leech, essentially. But she has no free will. Jim is like, let's take a moment and have a cup of coffee and catch up. And she's like, I can't. I have to be here until dark. When our prayer minders are going to come collect us. Yes. (laughs) So the implications here are all that it's some kind of cultish, you know, closed community kind of operation. And we also have the implication that, oh, this guy's another huckster because Rockford mentions San Francisco. And she says, oh, well, the reverend says that it's a terminal city. It's going to be destroyed by an earthquake. And Rockford's like, didn't he say that after they closed down his church that was up there? And then she looks away so that she's not matching his gaze and doesn't look at him in the eyes again for the rest of the conversation. It's harsh. It's a sad ending. It is. It's a sad, sad ending. And it's really interesting in comparison. Like we said before, uh, what kind of episode Mm -hmm. is this? And it's not really an issue episode. But this, this bit where the rest of it is pretty funny, this bit cannot be played for laughs no. like i do i do get a laugh when part of her patter with the audience is you sir you look like a yeah. sinner but yeah it's a very it's a very interesting decision to end what has been pretty funny throughout with this fatal moment right it reminds me of uh one of our first episodes countess where that yeah. ended with almost his mission statement of rockford talking to his uh, his his counterpart the the woman that was in that episode about how the whole world we live in it's everyone's just being fake and you just have to choose where you're gonna you know when to take advantage of it and when to just roll with it and was tonally pretty different from the earlier episode it's kind of like that where the thrust of the opinion isn't just that like oh all that hippie stuff that's all bull right it's more about this individualistic you need to make decisions for yourself Throwing yourself yeah. in into any system, whether it's a yogi or whether it's this reverend, you're still abdicating your personal responsibility and being a net drain on the people around you instead of a net positive. That's the most uh, ideological message, I think, of the episode. No, I, th- I think you're 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 absolutely correct there. I like it does change how you look at the earlier parts. Well, first of all, she has different names throughout. Born Jane became Gopi, and then Sky, and then Hester. Like, in the beginning, it would be easy to watch and think, oh, Gopi and Sky, that's just her being hippie. But those are two different disciplines. Mm-hmm. The, and then this final one, I think, kind of says it. Like, we're not talking about a specific worldview here. We're talking about this character inability to find herself. Mm-hmm. So she's just going to throw herself into whatever presents a easier solution than what she currently has. 
Yeah, and and this is brought home by just looking at Rockford's face as he listens to her. Like, we see him wanting to reach out to her, and he kind of get, makes an overture. She rebuffs him, and he's just kind of like, I mean, what else can I do? Yeah. He's not going to drag her away. He's not going to, unlike people like Gordon, or this reverend, presumably, he's not the kind of person who's like, let me force you into being a certain way. When yeah. presented with this choice, then he's like, all right, I tried, and you're your own person, and this is the choice you've made, and I'm a little sad about it. Yep. Almost every episode, we end on James Garner's smile. <laughs> this one, we end on his sad face. Yeah, and that's the episode. Yeah. Uh, so before we uh, wallow further in the ending that's uncharacteristic of the rest of the episode, should we take a quick break and then come back and talk a little bit about some lessons? Sounds good. We will see you in our second half where we're going to talk about some of the character decisions that we found so compelling in this episode and how they impacted the uh, the story and the overall narrative. While we have you here, there's three ways you can support us. First, rate and review on iTunes or whatever service you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as $1 an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. If you want to help us shape the direction of 200 a day, the Patreon is the best place to go. And finally, both of us have other projects going on pretty much all the time. Epi, what are you excited about right now? I'm excited about swords and sorcery, the type of swords and sorcery you find at worldswithoutmaster.com. And my new project, codename Lincoln Green, Robin Hood role-playing game. You can find all you need to know about that at digathousandholes.com. I'm excited about your stuff as well. Oh, that's so nice. As always, you can check out my catalog of fiction and role-playing games at ndpdesign.com, including the worldwide wrestling role-playing game. If you want to see my newest stuff, check out the playtest page. That's where I have free downloads of all my fun new projects. Thanks yet again for listening. As always, we deeply appreciate your support. And with that, back to the show. Welcome back to 200 a day. We were just talking about Quickie Narvana, I believe is how it was pronounced. That's how Jim said it. Yeah, from season four, episode seven of The Rockford Files. What we're about to do now is we're going to talk a little bit about the lessons, things that we learned during the show about the craft of mm -hmm. fiction, whether that fiction is something that you write down, you film, or as we often do, play in a role-playing game at the table. Yeah. What I have to start off with is probably more applicable to the kinds of things you write down in film than it is to what happens at the table. But let's not worry about that. Let people make up their own minds. The wonderful background details that take place around the character of Skye that clue you in to her internal mm -hmm. being. Even just formulating it that way gives me a, a path to how to think about this for games. So I'll throw oh, that good. out and then we'll go into the details. But often in a game, if you're playing an individual character, they have an internal life and an external life. Yeah. Some games give you tools uh, or some people just do this naturally, which is where you create or or discover this rich internal life of the character. But maybe because of the events of play or the way that the game's structured or the way the spotlight's moving around, you only have a limited amount of time, energy, or ability to express those things to the other players. So sometimes mm -hmm. people get hung up into this thing where they end up with this very rich internal play experience, but other people at the table don't get to see it. And that's kind of a net negative for everyone. It would be more fun if everyone could have seen what your character was going through. So maybe some of these things that we're going to talk about are uh, suggestions for ways that you can just throw a detail into your narration about whatever your character is doing to tip off everyone else to some of this internal stuff. Right. So 
the examples <clears throat> that I pointed out in the first half, the first one we get is, I mean, we get a lot of them, but the first one that I, I want to talk about is the Oreo. She comes into Rockford's trailer. Rockford is opening up a fish. She disapproves by telling us that people should love animals, not eat them. Uh, and then she takes an Oreo and eats it in a way that mimics what Rockford is doing. Rockford himself is not eating. He's preparing a fish by, I guess, deboning it. <laughs> My ignorance here is showing. But she eats her Oreo with a spoon, and she uses that spoon to scrape the stuffing out and just eats that off of it. I feel two ways to read this. Number one, it's her mirroring of Rockford, and we're going to get that, and we talked about that throughout, how she's kind of looking for someone to present her with mm -hmm. a way to be. But there's also this bit where she'll go through the trouble to eat what she wants out of it. The sugar. Yeah, the sugar. She doesn't eat the cookie part of it, near as I can tell, or we don't see that. It's not that people don't eat Oreos this way. You twist them. There's a whole commercial. But you know, you rarely see someone use a utensil. So I don't think it's an accident. So a general thing about TV and film analysis and criticism, right? Not that I'm claiming to be some kind of really smart guy in this regard. But everything you see on screen is a choice. And sometimes the choices are intentional and sometimes they're accidental or brought about by, yeah. you know, something else. The Rockford Files in general, in this episode in particular, I didn't feel like there were any accidental choices. All the choices seemed very intentional, yeah. whether they were character choices like this one. I mean, who knows where the choice came from, if that was the actress, if that was the direction, if right. that was in the script. But someone made the choice that this character eats an Oreo now. And this is how they eat it. And that right. resonates with other aspects of the character and resonates with the visual structure of the scene. So all of these yeah. details that you're going to talk about, I don't think we need to wonder about how, whether they're intentional or not. It's more about like the choice right, was right. made. It's a strong choice yeah. for whatever reason. And and for, for our purposes, we might as well just assume they're intentional. Right. And that's the thing. When you're writing, you are making choices. When you're playing a character, you're making choices. Yeah. How do you make choices that carry maximum weight, right? It doesn't have to be yeah. dramatic weight. It can be irony or comedy weight. But how do your choices communicate something on top of whatever the choice is about? My favorite of all of these is uh, when they're at the gas station and Rockford hands her the, the window cleaner and the, the something to wipe the window down and asks her to wipe down the window. And because your, your comedy reminded me of this, because this is a good bit. This is a good gag. She stands there. She talks with him for a while. And you're like, she's not wiping down the window. And then eventually she takes her glasses and cleans those. And that's what she does with it. And so it's funny. It's a nice, funny gag. But it's also the characterization of her. She's It embodies this the narcissism that she has going, right? She doesn't get out of herself enough She's not responsible for the things that happen to her, right? If you tell her to clean the windshield, the closest she can get to that is the glasses that are on her face, right? Like, she that's as far as she can see outside her, her own being. Her character is one who does that. But also it's playing up this, this running, it's not a gag, but this running commentary about how she's forgetful. Whether that's mm -hmm. drug-induced or not is kind of left up to the viewer, but yeah. <laughs> she's always forgetting things. You don't want to, like, overplay it, but I think they hit just the right level with this because it's, you don't have, like, a whole lot of attention drawn to them. They're not, like, dun-dun-dun. But there is attention drawn to them late, like, in the beginning, the Oreo one isn't. The Oreo one sticks out only because she's using a spoon and you're like, what? But later on, the, the, the windshield one mm. is a gag, so it gets pointed out that way. And then the meat one is, with the hamburger is also a gag, which 
is great because it, it also draws it enough attention to it, but the true meaning isn't like really focused on. It's more like here's a funny gag or here's a way to show her hypocrisy. But then like further down, the fact that she just pulls the, the burger out of the bun, you know, it's not like she's on a gluten-free diet or anything like that. She's really just eating the meat. It raises really interesting questions. Well, okay, one way, and I don't subscribe to this, but one way this could be read is that she's sort of imprinting on Rockford mm -hmm. at this point. Like, Rockford eats meat. Rockford's solving the problem. We just proved that my hero was a douchebag. Gordon is a, is a jerk. Who's her new savior? And it could be she's looking to Rockford. And like I said, I don't particularly subscribe to that, but I do think that that's a legit read of what's happening there. And then following that up with the, when they leave, knocking the condiments off yeah. the thing. Again, that's her whole life. The, the symbolism is clear, right? It's like she's just knocking things over yeah. and literally leaving it for other people to clean up. Yeah. This gives you something to chew on while you're enjoying it. It gives the reader something to puzzle out and mm -hmm. think about while the rest of the stuff is going on. In general, I enjoy that, right? Two things I want to say about this. One is that these details, I think, work best when they're a little open-ended and can be read in a couple ways. The Oreo thing... When you, when you add up how she's Oreo with how she's the hamburger, they both have a different role in those scenes as individual actions. They can also just be read as she's kind of a picky eater, and that kind of plays into her being yeah. kind of, like, flighty and, and kind of persnickety in her own way and, like, not really making firm decisions. You know, she just kind of eats a little bit here and eats a little bit there. That rolls into her character just as seamlessly to me as... yeah underlying these other things that she's talking about in the individual scene with how she eats the burger. And I think if details like that emerge out of how you understand the character, they'll probably do that naturally. They'll have those multiplicity of, of inferences. So I think when it emerges from the character, and then it's a thing that's yeah. consistent, but not the focus of the scene, that's great. Yeah. But when you pick a character tick, and that's the only thing your character does... That's the like right. negative version of this, where it turns from communicating something about the character, and then you get to see it happen in a fun way in different contexts, to the only thing my character does is touch the right. thing that's in the scene. But I don't interact with it, mm -hmm. or I don't have context for it. Just as soon as I walk into a room, I go and touch something. Like, that's not fun to watch, right. or read about, or or probably not the best thing to to add to your gaming table if uh, other people are, you know, trying to interact with you. If anybody has spent any time taking any classes on writing or anything like that, they, this is pretty basic stuff, but I think that this episode does a great job of illuminating it. I talked a little bit about how, I don't know if it's a great episode of The Rockford Files, but it's a great episode as a unit. And I think it's because, like, the craft is very yeah. strong, and it's not groundbreaking in any way. It's just well-executed. You know, these character de yes. details are well executed, you know, showing someone who might be the villain, but then they're actually not, you know, there's a different villain that reveals well executed, mm -hmm. giving us in a very short amount of screen time, a group of villains and their motivation. And then you're waiting to see them get get their comeuppance. I think that's well executed. So this is a good example of like, if any of these things are interesting to you, take some notes on this episode, <laughs> you could model yourself after much worse. Yeah. So speaking of that group of villains, that was something I wanted to talk about. Yes. 
the way in which that scene, which we spent a very good amount of time talking about, so I won't try to recap it, but but the, the scene where we meet Maceo and then we see him, the lawyer, and his two buddies, or our, our goons, all interacting. And we learn that, that they're the real villains here. He's the real villain, and then everyone else is kind of the instrument of his will. That scene happens after the halfway point of this episode. Kind of kicks off the the third act. So... Unlike other episodes where we meet those villains early, and so we have time to see their motivation develops, like we see their motivation unfold as the episode goes on, we meet them, we find out the motivation, we find out the backstory, and we discover their relationships to each other in this really succinct way. Big ball of exposition that I was excited to hear and then yeah on board with from that point on and i think the mechanism through which that was achieved in that scene was just this very simple i'm gonna say something about you about our past and then you're gonna say something about him about your past and then by the time everyone has done that we have this little nugget of backstory and uh, a little relationship map for lack of a better term, between the characters. I just thought that was a great technique and was, again, well executed. Yeah, I think the the placement in the story is really good, too, because uh, when I think about this episode, I think about it as a character episode, right? It's about Rockford and Skye. So the plot is driving the changes in that relationship, which is kind of being created, too, because I I assume they just sort of know each other and they get rolled up in this. So that scene hits right when you're... You've been watching all of this, finding out about how who Sky is and how she's in all this, and you know, and it hits roughly at the point where you're like, "Wait a minute, right. there's a mystery going on here." Oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> you know, like right when you start getting worried about that mystery, right when the pressure really, really hits for what what's happening. A scene like that can be dangerous because it can be just, "All right, we need to barf a bunch of information into the the waiting." baby bird mouths of the audience (laughs) and that's not what you want to do but yeah i'm trying to parse out what it is because often i the formula of hey don't you remember when we did this like that's a very kind of like b movie yeah construct the relationship between these characters let me tell you about a thing that we both did which feels artificial right right like why do i need to like hey epi let me tell you about that time that we did a podcast i don't need to introduce it that way i can just start talking about it because we did it we already know and this didn't strike me that way even though it's kind of the same mechanism and i think why this works a little better for me other than just grading on the rockford curve which is everything in the show i think is great um let's be real yeah is that first of all that exposition happens later in the scene like the plot exposition happens first Maceo needs to explain to Bayless why Bayless needs to be on his side and and why he's right right and because Bayless is doubting him and we already know that it makes sense that he's let me lay this out for you to get you on my side this is why it was so yeah. important um and then there's a secondary goal of giving Bayless uh, a reason to say that murder isn't ever worth it but that happens first and then we do the like Look, we came up together. Don't you remember the Bronx? Right. I think why it works here and why it works here and why it's become a trope that's a little hackneyed. You and I have a moment where uh, somewhere in the future I've killed a person and you recognize that Mm -hmm. I'm talking crazy when I'm saying we have to kill again. 
because I've killed this person. We have to kill again. You want to bring me back down to when I was fairly reasonable. You remember when we were talking about <laughs> Quickie Nirvana in our podcast? Yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons why it works in this scene is that you would want to bring them back to an earlier point. Yeah. When they wouldn't actually kill. And the stakes are high. When the stakes are low, when the stakes are introduce the audience to this new character and why we know each other, it's different. Right, exactly. This happens, I think, all over the place, is that a scene like that will work for someone and someone else will see it and be like, oh, that worked. We can do that now without examining mm-hmm. why it worked. So then you go and reproduce the scene and it's out of nowhere, you know? I feel like it wouldn't work as well if... Bayless was already on his side, right? Like, it works because Bayless needs to be convinced. Yeah. There's lots of games that do this. Uh, a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse games in particular come to mind of creating, you know, HX or Bonds or, you know, whatever, where right, it's right. structured with a set of questions, usually during character generation, in order to mm-hmm. establish relationships and give you some something to go on as you play. But this could also be used mid-game, even to connect you to, you know, like a, a the GM brings in a character, how do you know each other? Or give me a sentence uh, connecting you to this person, or just something where you want to deepen your connection or, or complicate your relationship with someone. Just kind of doing a little round robin of like, we did this thing, we came from this area, we, you know, know each other because of this, it can be really effective. I think that... That's absolutely true. And it, this is one of those interesting moments where I do think a lot can be forgiven yeah. at the table that can't be forgiven in crafted fiction, right? When you're playing the game, you don't have to worry about if that sort of thing is awkward. Because whatever. We're we're in the moment. We're playing the characters in the scene. You yeah. can go ahead and be a little awkward. It's It's forgiven. Using tropes in play, I think, works because they're tropes for a reason. Because they have a function. And when you're playing, right. the function is what's important. And witnessing the artifice of it is not because you're already in an artifice. Like, you've, you've constructed an entire artifice for yeah. you guys to play in. so Or you, you folks to play in. So, go to. To get a little too deep into theory about that, I think uh, what happens is the whole suspension of disbelief oh, yeah. is going on. Where if you're playing a role-playing game, your brain is working harder to suspend disbelief than when you're watching a television show. So your brain is more capable of overcoming the awkwardness. And I'd agree with that. So, yeah. My last contribution for this conversation will appropriately enough be about epilogues. Yeah. So this episode features an epilogue. Uh, I, I don't know how to go about defining what is and is not an epilogue. When do you cut the story? When do you say, we did it, we're done? This is a thing that in... Again, to get into role-playing games, this is a thing that uh, I deal with when I play Swords Without Master because the game tells you when you're done. The game says, you've done this, you're done, stop. And the challenge of the game is to bring the story to a good close Mm -hmm. the moment that happens. And there are definitely times where that occurs, and that's the moment when Jim says, oh yeah, I'm satisfied, and smiles at the camera. Cut, and we're done. And then there are other times where you do that, and then everyone's like, oh, there's just Mm. one more beat. Like, we need to just say one more thing. And in this case, we need to say something about what happened to Sky. I think what differentiates this one is that a lot of the time it's about the resolution of the mystery. Like, the last little bit 
is almost more of a, yeah. a button or a stinger, I would say, where it's kind of like, turns out that they were actually laundering money, so they're going to go to jail forever. Like, because that wasn't yeah. germane to the plot, but now that they've been arrested for whatever was germane, that was the motivation, and now we yeah. know and we have closure. While this is is literally just about, but what happened to Sky? The whole episode, yeah. as you said earlier, has been driving the character dynamic of Rockford and Sky and how she's reacting to him uh, and possibly changing. So how did that work? Where did it go? And then we find out where it went. I think what makes this epilogue particularly interesting is where it sits in juxtaposition yeah. to the rest of the story. It is sad. It's a it's an unhappy ending after kind of a rollicking story. And I think that that's an interesting application of an epilogue. You could definitely overdo it. But I think that this is like one of those, those moments where it is kind of neat to have just one more beat that adds a little weight to what happened before. It I used the dirty word ideology or ideology earlier, <laughs> but it makes the ideology apparent and clarifies for us as audience what the world of the Rockford Files and the people making the show, what they value in how people interact and what they don't value and what they think is not appropriate, right? And it's not in a punishing way where it's like, uh, like Sky isn't punished for her choices, we just see the natural progression right. uh, of those choices and where they brought her and how that makes Rockford sad and disappointed. Yeah. Yeah, I think you bring up something interesting about how the epilogue can serve different purposes. One is to tie up the loose ends of the plot. Yeah. Like we've kind of achieved the satisfactory victory or defeat, whatever it was. But there's still some details mm -hmm. that just for our own sense of narrative pacing and, and closure. Let's just wrap those up. And then there's the epilogue of, so the story happened. What does that mean for the characters, right. usually? Or maybe the world or whatever. But like in, in my gothic horror game, Annalise, there's a dedicated epilogue little phase at the end of the game. You play the game and there's, you know, you use the mechanics and you find out what the nature of the, the vampire and what it's doing and how you all react to it and how you change and what you do and what actions you take. And then once you've completed the story, once you're like, we had the confrontation, it is over for good or for ill. Yeah. Then the game says, now you're going to play the epilogue where everyone has a turn to say, what does that mean for your character? Where do you go next? And that could be, oh, well, I died. So this was the impact it had on the people around me. Or it could be, this is how this character's life changed afterwards, or it's whatever it is. But the point of that is to give every player a, a dedicated space to reflect on their character journey and decide, oh, there's a little bit more that I wanted to show, or this is what the implication is, or this is the aftermath of my character story. It's also interesting in the context here because mm -hmm. it's part of an ongoing series, right? So Rockford Files doesn't have, you know, the big story arcs and whatnot that we're kind of used to today. But still, if you end it with him smiling, mm -hmm. you'd be like, okay, next week we'll come back for another adventure. Uh, but this epilogue makes this feel like the ending of a chapter. Mm -hmm. We're leaving you with, now sit with that. And I think that that's, in Annalise, that that epilogue... Mm -hmm. has that same sort of function where it's like, okay, we've been doing this where we keep coming back and telling this story. Now it's time for us to say we, we're sitting with what's happening or w with what has happened. And I think that's interesting. I think that's a, a neat way to apply it in something that continues. 
And I think something that it achieves in Rockford Files in this episode, which is neat, uh, is that it underscores the idea that the choices made in the episode impact the larger world. Yes. And that there is a larger world that Jim lives in. So, yeah. and we see that implied through lots of moment to moment action of an episode. But because there aren't these long narrative arcs, um, the way that that's achieved is usually by like the, you know, characters feeling like they have real lives outside of Rockford. And then moments like this, where we see four to five months later, you know, what the fallout of the events were for this character. Yeah. Another element in the the living, breathing Rockford Files world that we know and love. Do you have anything else to say about Quickie Nirvana? <laughs> Nirvana? Yeah, it was a good episode again. Fun, very fun to watch. Yeah, I'd seen the episode before, and the moment the preview montage started, like I remember thinking, "I'm in for a funny time." Yeah. Oh wait, this one's sad. Both of those emotions were achieved. Um, it's good. An- another one that really rewards the act of watching. Fun to watch, yeah. just to watch an episode, uh, and then just has lots and lots of layers and details on the active watch. So Yeah, to sit and just kind of piece out what's happening. And and the performances are just stellar. Like, we didn't really talk about them specifically yeah. because we we're talking about all the details. But I think across the board, great yeah, casting yeah, and absolutely. just good chemistry and well done. Uh, and so, yeah, so with that, I'd say we have earned our $200 for today. Ching. Ching. Even though Rockford was out, who knows how much for all of his escapades. Oh, my God. A giant variable. So, yeah, so that'll be it for us. Thank you all again so much for listening. And we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files. <laughs>